God's house this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. This morning we are starting a different type of message series. Even if we want to call it that, I'm not sure if that's the right way to call this. Um, it's more of kind of an ongoing rolling call to awareness in action. So if we call it a message series, it's going to be different for a number of reasons. One of the first reasons is it is going to feel different. When I mean it feels different, there's going to be Sundays, very much like today, that you might feel like you stepped into a statistics class. A happy, exciting, informative, spirit-filled statistics class. But statistics nonetheless. I'm going to load your wagon with a bunch of facts and figures and information that is unbelievably relevant for you as well as for those that you love. At times it might feel as though you are a part of a really, really big small group. And that is because the messages are going to be unbelievably personal. They are geared this way. I want it to be that it will cause conversation between families and family members. I want it to be unbelievably practical, something that people can immediately begin to apply into their daily lives. It also might feel like you are being recruited for a cause, and you are. Now, we are not building homes for koalas, and we are not taking up donations for basket weavers of America. I'm sure both of those are great causes. But rather, we're joining together in what could be a 10 to 15-year project to equip believers to reverse many disturbing trends that are happening within the church and culture. There's a lot of work that's going to go into this particular series. It's going to feel different. It's also going to progress differently. And that is, instead of it being something that is four, maybe six weeks in a message series and we cover everything in four to six weeks, there is no way that you can cover everything that needs to be covered in this series in four to six weeks. So instead, I'm going to do four to six weeks this year and four to six weeks next year and maybe three to five weeks the following year and two to three the next year. Altogether, there will be 40, 50, 100 or more messages that come into this series. And this is very specific. And the reason I'm doing this is if we were to lay it out in sequential Sundays, it would be information overload. And as opposed to a lot of sermon-induced panic attacks happening in the church, I am going to give manageable bites. I'm going to give people an opportunity to work that out. Then we're going to come back and we're going to get some more. And we're going to work that out. We're going to get some more. And we're going to work that out so it doesn't all pile up on the front side. I'm neighborly like that. I'm trying to help you here. So also, it is a series that is focused differently. Uh, most message series have a single focus. It's focused on a topic like prayer or forgiveness or trust or something like that. This particular series is going to be multifocused with a unifying concept of discipleship within the home. If we truly believe that discipleship is to primarily happen at home, if we truly believe that parents are the primary disciplers of their kids, if we truly believe, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, that parents and grandparents 
are to transfer the truths of God to their kids and their grandkids. If we truly believe that, the question becomes, how do you train and equip believers to do that on a practical level? There's a lot of pieces of discipleship, the big picture, and there's a lot of pieces of how do you disciple well within the home. For example, the truths that you share with a six-year-old are different than the truths you share with a 16-year-old that are different than the truths you share with a 26-year-old. It's all different. A lot of discipleship is caught and not taught. You need to see it lived by example before you can receive it by explanation. So we're going to look at what does it appear to be from Scripture of how do you walk faithfully with God when you're single, if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, How are you to walk faithfully with God through the different stages of life? We're going to discover what God requires of parents. We are going to pull out the idea of what does it look like for men to be spiritual heads of the home. I cannot tell you how many times I've had young men who are newly married. They might have a child or so in the home, and they will come into my office, tears in their eyes, saying, I know I'm supposed to be a spiritual leader in my home. I just don't know how. And many times it's because they were first-generation believers. They've never seen it lived in the home. Sometimes they grew up in a Christian home. They just did not see it modeled before them. We're going to dig into how do you disciple your kids as they transition through stages of maturity, from children to teenagers to young adults to young married couples. We're going to dig into how do you develop a discipleship plan for your family. And when I talk about a discipleship plan, here's what I mean. I'm talking about how do you develop, pull in all the truths, the pertinent truths of God's word that you want to transfer to your kids and your grandkids. How do you develop that plan for your kids so that when they get married, you're able to say, this is what I taught you. When you have grandkids, you can say, this is how your parents were trained. This is what I want you to know. How do you transfer those pieces off to another generation? Now, package it all together. This is a series that is about discipleship that happens at home. I am going to challenge you throughout the series to fight for your family and to build the legacy that you want to leave. In this entire series, I'm going to encourage you to make decisions today that you're going to be glad that you made 10 years from now. It's a series about reaching the next generation for Christ and reversing many of the disturbing trends that are happening within the church and culture. It is a series about how we as a church can collectively say we are concerned about generational discipleship. We want to be a part of the solution. And this is what it looks like for a local church to come together and earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what this series is about. Now, I've got like seven smiles and a couple heads shaking in agreement. All I can say is on my side, I'm so excited about this series. I might blow a gasket this morning, but that's okay. So we're going to dig in and we're going to get after it. There's a lot to cover. So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. I am teaching this morning broad topic of establishing a godly home. Establishing a godly home. Now, our main text today, it shares a focused decision. 
I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to set everything up in the message, and then we're going to come back to this particular text, and we're going to pull it apart from one side to the other. So at this time, let's read the second part, Joshua chapter 24, second part in verse number 15. Very familiar. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that apart from your spirit moving in hearts throughout this series, that God, it's just going to be words that are shared that never transform a life. So God, from the very beginning, our dependence is upon you. It's not about the message that I deliver as much as it is your spirit preparing hearts and using your word in order to transform lives. So God, we submit our time before you, and Lord, may you Live boldly through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we start this journey, I want to set up the need. I want to help you understand some disturbing trends within our society. I want you to see a biblical pattern for how faith is transferred from one generation to the next. And I want to do everything I can possibly do to prepare you so that your family is positioned in Christ discipled well with all of the changes that take place within culture. So here's the first part, and that is, what is the need? I believe, this is just a personal conviction of mine, I believe that every message that is delivered in a church on a Sunday should actually address a need. There's nothing worse than showing up at church and somebody's like getting up, sharing some devotional ideas, and you're like, that has no bearing in my daily life. A part of my challenge as a pastor, and this is just a part of what I'm trying to do, is I always want it to be every single time you're showing up at church, you feel as though value has been added to your life. You have been edified, you have been equipped, you have been encouraged in the word. You have been challenged to go to another level. I don't want it to be that you show up and you walk away and somebody says, that was a waste of my morning. I never want that to be the case. So we're going to see what the need itself is. This is a need that is bigger than your family. It's a need that is bigger than our church. It is a need that is bigger than our denomination. This is a need that drives us back to the very mission of Christ. There's a number of places found in the New Testament where the Great Commission is given. One of those primary texts is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, very familiar. Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So there's three basic parts as far as living out this great commission. Make disciples, baptize disciples, teach disciples. Make disciples, baptize disciples, teach disciples. The church, listen closely, is in the disciple-making business. We're in the disciple-making business. That's why we're here. A part of it ultimately will be to glorify God, but that comes as disciples are made and as people are living out of the overflow of a right relationship with God. Our programs, our buildings, our budgets, our services, everything that we do should be moving the ball forward in making new and stronger disciples who know Christ and make him known. We are in the disciple-making business. It's good to stop along the way and ask the question, how's business? 
If we're called to make disciples, baptize disciples, and teach disciples, if we're in the disciple-making business, we got to stop and say, are more and more people falling madly in love with Jesus and following him wholeheartedly? Are more people engaged in their community? Are more people getting the gospel to the ends of the earth? Are we making a difference? How is business if we're supposed to be making disciples? Well, I'm going to give you a number of statistics, and I want you to decide for yourself. Christianity is the largest religious group in the world, with more than 31% of the world's population claiming to be Christian. That is 2.3 billion people. In North America, Christianity is the largest religion by far, with 65% of adults identifying themselves as Christians. Now, this next one might be startling, but 90% of Americans say they believe in God, say they are spiritual in some way, and that they have a favorable view of Jesus. Now, if we were to stop right there, it sounds like business is booming, but that doesn't tell the whole story. According to a recent Gallup survey, 47% of Americans belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. By the way, that is not just Christian, that is in each of the major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 47% are involved in some way. Now, just to let you know, when the exact same survey was done in 2000, the number was at 70%. In 21 years, there has been a 23% drop in those who are connected into some type of house of worship. When the research is divided out generationally, it shows a disturbing trend. Based on 2021 data, the builders, those who were born before 1946, 66% of them are affiliated with a church. Now, the word affiliated, it means any connection. Their name could be on a roll. They might show up one time a year. They might be absolutely involved every week. In fact, just another little stat there, regular church attendance in evangelical churches today is 1.6 times per month. 1.6 times per month. The boomers, born between 1946 and 1964, 58% are affiliated with the church. Gen X, born between 1965 and 1980, 50% are affiliated with the church. Millennials, those born between 1981 and 1996, 36% are affiliated with the church. Gen Z, those born 1997 through today, 20% are affiliated with the church. Another little piece of information, millennials are rapidly replacing the boomers as the largest living generation and voting block. If you don't like some of the things you're seeing in culture, just know more's coming. Of the 36% of millennials who are currently involved in church, there's only 36% to begin with. Of the 36% currently involved in church, 80% will leave by the time they're 29. Now, here's what those stats are telling us. Number one, we are not effectively transferring our faith to the next generation. Here's the next thing that those stats are telling us. Even those who grew up in the church, who had been exposed to the teachings of the Word of God, even those who have heard the claims of Christ, even those who have been in for years are now opting out in droves. 
Now, you and I know you don't get over Jesus. So if true conversion has happened, if disciples are being made, if you don't get over Jesus, what's gone wrong with the harvest? What are the problems that are causing those who have been involved to say, we no longer want it, and those who are not involved to say, I never needed that to begin with? How do you reverse some of those different trends? Well, I believe a first part of that is there has to be a reality check that takes place in the church. We, we have to face some, some many times difficult points of reality. Number one on that is business is not good. It's not good. I, I've been saying for over 15 years when teaching on this topic that we are less than one generation away from the church in America ceasing to exist as we know it. It is not the idea that the church itself will ever be snuffed out. We understand that. Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here's what we do recognize. Unless something major happens, what you and I have grown up experiencing or our parents experienced or our grandparents experienced, that idea of coming together with other believers in like-minded biblical community, that concept is going to be foreign to your kids and your grandkids if we don't stop what's going on. Another part is the current efforts to reverse the trends have failed. This is not anything new. For over 30 years, denominational leaders and pastors have been throwing everything they have, including the kitchen sink, at the problem. We have gone through and surveyed the changes and strategized things to death, and we've hit it with every program under God's heaven. We have called for more evangelism and more church planting and more prayer and more money and more missions. Some people are even calling for Jesus to come back soon so we don't have to address the problem at all. All I can tell you is it's not reversed the trends. And a part of the reason is this is not a problem that has changed with a program in the church. This is not a problem that has changed with four to six weeks. It's not changed with Christian education. It is changed with ongoing hundreds and hundreds of moments, thousands and thousands of teachable opportunities of making disciples in home so that they flourish within church and within culture. It's changed over time. Here's another piece. The essentials of the Great Commission have not changed. God has not changed. The gospel has not changed. We are still called to make disciples and baptize disciples and to teach disciples. The question becomes how? How do you make disciples when more and more people are less and less interested in spiritual matters? Now, we're going to answer that question in many ways over the course of this particular series. But today, I simply want to go back to Joshua's words. For thousands of years, Joshua's words have been a rally cry for generational discipleship. It's simple this. It's, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. His words take responsibility. As for me and my house. I, I can't tell you what's going to go on in somebody else's house. But I'm going to take responsibility first. As for me and my house. Also, his words are marked with certainty. We will serve the Lord. There is clarity in what he's saying. He's not wondering 
what we're pursuing. He's not wondering where we're going to focus our attention. He's saying we will serve the Lord. And his words lead towards intentionality. He drew a line in the sand. While others might be chasing other gods, he was like, you choose for yourself. But as for me and my house, a line has now been drawn in the sand. We will serve the Lord. That leads to our big truth for this morning. Now, this big truth is not going to rock anybody's world. It's not going to be a new idea that anybody has uh, thought to themselves, I've never thought about that. But here's the simple truth. Godly homes are established intentionally and relationally. Godly homes are established intentionally and relationally. Now, I also understand that godly homes are saturated in the truths of God's word. They are covered in prayer. They are strengthened by healthy marriages. They are grounded in the gospel. I also understand that they are permeated with a biblical worldview. And we're going to cover all of those things over time. All I'm saying at this particular point is all of that begins by somebody intentionally saying, it's going to be different in my house. I don't know what everybody else is going to do, but in my house, this is how we're going to move forward. It begins intentionally and relationally. Did you know no one ever wakes up 20, 25 years down the road after marriage, kids, kids moving out? They turn around and they say, wow, I got a godly family. I didn't even try. No one ever does that. You got to fight for a godly heritage. You got to put in the work. You got to put in the time. You, you have to go at it with intentionality. You have to say, I'm going to put time and focus and energy into my family's legacy being different than others. It has intentionality that is involved. It all begins with intentionality and relationships. You can see that principle work out in a huge way within the first century church. When somebody got saved, and by the way, when I say when somebody, I'm not talking about groups. Like we know 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. That's wonderful, but they weren't called out by name. Notice the times that somebody is mentioned by name. And when that person is mentioned by name, that individual took the gospel back to their home. They took it to their relational networks, their relational circles. Uh, The Greek word for this set of relationships is referred to as oikos, O-I-K-O-S. It is a New Testament term. It's most often translated as household or home. Now, when we think of a household or a home, we usually think about our our immediate family. But in the first century, a person's household or their home was comprised of those who lived in the home and those who made the home operate. So it would be parents and kids and grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. It would be servants and the servants' kids and the bakers and the guards. It's anybody who is connected into that household would come under that particular label. So over time, the term oikos was used to describe these networks of people or these relational circles. For us to understand the rapid spread of the gospel in the first century, you have to go back and look at those relational circles. It's imperative. Here's another little fun piece of trivia. Did you know that within 20 years of the ascension of Christ, his disciples had taken the gospel to the utmost part of the known world as they found it? 20 years. 
Now, what did they know that we didn't know? What were they working through that we're not working through? Because we have more resources than they did. We have more pieces, tools at our disposal. We, we have the internet. We have social media. We have live stream. We have all of these other things that can get communication out. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that disciples are being made. So this term oikos, it referred to a home or a household. So for example, in Acts chapter 16, after Lydia responded to the gospel, in verse number 15, it says, she and her household, oikos, were baptized. Remember, baptism is a part of discipleship. That is, we make disciples, we baptize disciples, we teach disciples. Also in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And Paul's response is in verse 31. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It's the same word. It's oikos. Now, Paul was not suggesting that the faith of one would save the others. But what is being made very clear is the same gospel that transformed one life can transform the lives of all of those that are around you. From the very beginning, we understand the gospel was not intended to stay with you. You take it immediately back into your home. So when they were, he was told the gospel transformed you and your household, now, what was the Philippian jailer's response? Did he say, nah, I'll just let him figure it out myself? Oh, you... Paul, you don't understand my mother-in-law. She's against organized religion. I was reading this book on parenting, and it talked about the fact you need to let your kids just discover God on their own. You don't, you don't find that. What does he do? He brings them in his house. He gives them a chance to get the gospel into his family, and his household responds. His household responds. There is immediate concern for home. There is an intentional effort for his home. Here it is. He brought the gospel home. He brought the gospel home. He brought the gospel home. The gospel is intended to go home. That same pattern is throughout the New Testament. When people encountered the truth of the gospel, they shared it within their network of relationships, in their house, in their household. Examples, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Crispus, Acts chapter 18, Andrew and Peter, John chapter 1, the Gerizim demoniac, Mark chapter 5, Philip and Nathaniel, John chapter 1, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. The gospel is a relational story that thrives in a relational setting. And we all have relational settings. We all have these networks around us of family and friends and coworkers and classmates, people in Little League, people that you grew up with and you're still connected with on social media. Like there's all these networks of relationships that are around us. And in every one of those networks, are people who do not know Christ, but they need to know him. And God has placed you there as salt and light in that network. So the question now becomes, will you take ownership of it? Will you take responsibility for it? Will you say, God, to the best of my ability, I submit myself to you. Would you live the gospel out 
of me towards those who are the closest to me. I'm about to give you a word that's going to upset some people. More than what you already are, but that's okay. (laughs) One of the most devastating lies ever perpetuated in the church is the idea that it's harder to get the gospel to your family than anybody else. That is a lie. And I'm going to expose it here. Who's going to be more passionate about your family than you? Who's going to be more willing to pray for your family than you? Who's going to be more willing over the course of time when they don't accept things up front to keep sharing the truths of the gospel than you? Who's going to be sitting with family members at your family vacations and sitting at Thanksgiving and Christmas? Who's going to have more opportunity to get it in than you? Here's the issue. The reason it seems harder is we can't fake it around our family. Your family will sniff out phony religion fast. The reason it seems harder is they're going to spot hypocrisy in the home. When you bring the gospel home, when you bring the gospel home, when you bring the gospel home, you better live it well. They will call you out. And here's the issue. People don't like being called out, so you know what we do? We keep it to ourselves. And we say, it's just harder to talk to my family. No, it's not. When George Barna was surveying teenagers, over 85% of teenagers who grow up in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, youth group, 85% who grow up in the church when they graduate from high school never come back into church again. 85% who grew up in the church. And when he asked, what is the primary reason that you left? Do you know what the number one response was? God has never been real to my parents. They did not say, my parents did not believe in God. They did not say, my parents did not take me to church. They said, God has never been real to my parents. Here's what they're dealing with. They're literally hearing their parents say, God is important, while their parents are living like functional atheists in the home. God doesn't change how they make decisions. God doesn't change how they operate with finances. God doesn't change how they schedule their day. And after 18 to 20 to 22 years or more of watching it in the home, it made an impression on the kids. God has not been real to my parents, so God's not going to be real to me. Now, please, please hear me. Please hear me. None of that should take us by surprise. None of it. One of the number one responses that people give for why they don't want to attend church is hypocrisy in the church. The number one response that kids gave of why they don't want to go back is hypocrisy in the home. It's hurting on both sides. Now, I know this morning's message is not going to be one of those you walk away with warm, fuzzy feelings in your stomach. I, I gave up that a long time ago. The truths that we're having to deal with here are the ones that are more important than us walking away with warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm tired of Christian parents and grandparents and great-grandparents 
coming and saying, my family's in shambles. My heart breaks on those things. And please, please hear me in this. I'm not trying to beat up parents. And I'm also not trying to say that there are not times when kids walk away from the faith and they've had incredible examples at home. That happens as well. That, that, so that's what you're hearing. That's, that's not what I'm saying. In those moments, that is between that child and God. But if the parents who has been challenged by God to bring their kids up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, if the parent has not made God a priority, if the parent has not taken their kids to church, you don't send them to church, you take them to church. You lead by example. If you're not going to do that, if you're not pouring the truths of God into your family, then that's going to hurt a whole lot more when you recognize that there's been missed opportunity. I cannot stress this next point enough. I can't stress it enough. Regardless of what is taught in church, it can all be negated by what's lived in the home. Families take a lot of time to find a really good church when they move into a community. They want to have one that's going to preach the word. They want a great student ministry for the kids. They want solid worship. All of that's great. It's wonderful. And praise God, I believe this is a solid church. I do. But it doesn't matter if it is negated by how the Christian parents are living within the home. What happens at home is going to make a bigger impact over time. Kids are not dumb. Kids will mimic both good and bad the habits of their parents. What parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. If you moderately walked away from the things of God, if you moderately kept God in the margin, your kids will do that in excess. To effectively disciple our kids, we cannot start with, here's what your kids need to know. We have to start with, here's how parents need to live. It's modeled before them. God provides, here it is, God provides temporary influence to parents for their kids. Temporary influence. We are to use that to build permanent faith in God. When your kids are really little, you can tell them whatever you want to tell them and they're going to believe you. I, I can remember when my kids were little, they would come and they would ask me random questions and I would just give random answers. Sometimes they would ask me like, uh, hey dad, you know, what had happened today at work? And I would say, like there was a pink elephant that showed up at church today. They're like, really? That's great. At three and four years old, they're not going to question you. you got temporary influence over your kids. Use it to build permanent faith in God. So at this point, I'm probably up to my eyeballs and emails, so we're just going to keep going a little further. <laughs> As a church, we have to prioritize children's and student ministries. Have to prioritize them. Here's another 10 emails. <laughs> that is not free babysitting for me time. That is ministries 
that are partnering with families to get the gospel into your kids at an early age. Praise God for every worker, every leader, every helper who is back in children's ministry, in youth ministry. Praise God for them. Those are, listen, those are some of the greatest heroes and missionaries on the front line of where lives are changed. One of the things that has hit me over the years is the biggest mission field that is immediately accessible to the local church is in the children and the student ministry of that church. 85% of people who enter relationship with Christ will do so between the ages of 4 and 14. 85%, it's referred to as the 414 window by researchers. Only 6 to 8% will ever come to faith in Christ between the ages of 15 and 18. If you add it together, that means 94% of all of those who will ever place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior will do it by the time they're 18 years old. 18. Other research by Barna shows that by the age of nine, the age of nine, most children have their spiritual moorings already in place. By the age of 13, their spiritual profile as an adult has almost completely been framed. By 13, 13, here's my fear as a pastor. Here's my concern for other families. During the 414 window, there's entirely too many Christian families that are more concerned if Bobby can throw a ball or if Sally can dance well than whether or not they know Jesus personally. There's entirely too many people that are more concerned with those things than seeing the fully developed life of Christ being lived out in their kids. And we only got a small window of this. If the church is not sounding the alarm, you're not going to get this information on the nightly news. If we're not saying this is a problem, we need to address it. If we're not equipping families in the church so that they can reach the next generation, then what are we doing? What are our services for if disciples are not being made who know Christ and make him known? And if your legacy ends here, God help us on that. Mm, I'm already over my time, but we're just going to keep going. Listen, listen. There's a lot of kids who are growing up in homes that they don't have godly parents who can walk them through the difficult points of life. And they're struggling. There's a lot of single moms out there that are saying, how can I effectively lead my kids? There's a lot of kids growing up. There's no godly influence around them at all. But here's why the church is such a beautiful thing. It should be that you can say, bring that child into this body and we'll train them on what it looks like to walk as a disciple. It should be that other parents are saying, my kids are out of the house, but I'll help you with yours. My kids are now grown, but I'll help you with yours. Why is it that we're not seeing that? A lot of times it's because we're so focused on other things that that side of discipleship is missed. We just figure somewhere down the road they'll figure it out. Not unless somebody cares enough to draw the line in the sand and say, as for me and my house, which by the way, household, oikos, networker relationships, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
My concern is not that ball games and dance recitals and other activities are not good and important. I grew up with sports. My kids have been involved in sports and other activities. That, that's not it. Don't hear me say that. My concern is when everything else takes precedence over the things of God, something is wrong with the priorities. When your child stands before God, the question is not going to be, what level did they get to in sports? The question will be, what have you done with Jesus who is called the Christ? And it has to get it there in the home. As best I can understand from a human perspective, biblical pieces of theology, I understand election, I understand calling, I understand God's sovereignty. I am not trying to negate any of those pieces here. But I also understand the same word of God that gives us those concepts also tells us to bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It also tells us that we're to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Statistically speaking, the 414 window is massive in your child's development. It does not mean they cannot come to faith in Christ at 20, 40, 60, or 90. It just means that the statistics are a lot lower. So, where do we start? What do we do at this point? First, start today. I, I don't want you to walk away thinking there's no hope. I don't want you to look back and say, I've messed it up with my family. Here's the beauty that you find in Scripture. God can take the little that we offer and do a lot with it. The book of Joel says that God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The issue is, will you start today? Start today. Start today. Draw a line in the sand today. In the next four weeks, I'm going to address biblical discipline for your kids Developing a discipleship plan for your family. And then we're going to spend two weeks on a topic that I've been asked to address again. It's been 11 years since I addressed this topic. It was the longest title of any message that I've ever delivered, and it was a two-parter. Here's the title. Societal Trends, Role Reversal, and the Need for Biblical Modeling Among the Sexes. Yes. We're getting into it. So there's a lot coming. So here's your homework, three parts. Ask God to save your kids at an early age. Daily ask God. Daily ask God. Second, ask God to show you any areas where your example has become a deterrent. Third, ask God if there's any friends or families who are wrestling with similar concerns. And if so, invite them to be with you through this series. These are messages and a focus that is not only good for you and your family, it's good for your whole oikos, Amen. all your networks of relationships. So this is a all-hands-on-deck type of series. And Lord willing, by the time we finish, either Jesus will come back before then or I'll be about 85. <laughs> but by the time we finish... We are going to have pulled out discipleship within the home to help every person address every stage for every good work. If you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
we recognize that unless you do something that reverses trends, unless you do something that burdens hearts, unless your spirit comes through in a sweeping revival that stops people in their tracks and moves us towards your agenda, then God, we're going to miss it. Lord, there is an entire generation that is coming behind us that they've not seen it biblically modeled at many times, and they need a starting place. Lord, may this church be a place where it starts. May there be moms and dads who together are saying, as for us and our house, here's what we're doing together. God, I'm praying for, for dads right now because Fathers are to be that spiritual head of the home. God, I'm praying that the enemy will not come in and sell the lie that you've already missed your opportunity. Lord, may there be dads who say, starting today, starting today, God, help me to be the man of God, the spiritual leader in the home that I need to be. And Lord, I pray that you would give practical ways for that to be lived out. God, I pray that there is a swelling of hearts and minds moving in the same direction that the burden that we have for our culture and for the church becomes so strong that we do join together as a church family and we earnestly contend for the faith. God, apart from you leading in that, we're going to miss it. So Lord, may some lines be drawn in the sand today. God, may there be an awakening that happens in your people today. May legacies 30 years from now be changed because of what's taking place today. May your spirit continue to prompt louder and louder and louder until we say, yes, Lord, use me in order to change the legacy of my family. God, we need you. We need you. May you do something that amazes us. And God will be careful to give you praise and to give you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Our pastors are going to be at the ends of the aisles. Today, you might just need somebody to come in to pray with you. Come down, talk to one of our pastors. You might want to just find a place and pray at the altar yourself. You might want to turn your seat into an altar right there and pray there. Whatever the Spirit of God is leading you to do, I'm going to encourage you to say yes to the Spirit. Let's see.